Welcome to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. How to get below the radar of your mind and what to do once you're there is the topic of this edition of Radio Curious. One goal is to reach the quantum of personal learning in the subconscious mind and bring that experiential knowledge to the conscious mind of daily life. A trusted guide is often beneficial. Our guest is Dr. Jeffrey Zeig in another conversation about the Ericksonian approach to psychotherapy. Dr. Zeig is the founder and director of the Milton Erickson Foundation and a clinical psychologist based in Phoenix, Arizona. He has directed multiple conferences on the evolution of psychotherapy, including the 11th Milton Erickson Psychotherapy Conference, where he and I met in December 2011 in Phoenix, Arizona. You may find more information at his website, jeffzeig.com, that's J-E-F-F-Z-E-I-G.com, and erickson-foundation.org. Dr. Zeig and I began our conversation when I asked him about the history of psychotherapy. Psychotherapy was only invented in 1885 when Freud became interested in the psychological aspects of medicine. And so our field of psychotherapy is very young. So what is the essence of psychotherapy? The essential part of psychotherapy is you have one human being who's trying to help the other. Now that's not even necessarily uh, constricted to talk because it might be some uh, activity that people were doing, like uh, so doing something with their body. So for some people, the essential unit of analysis for psychotherapy is that people change their thoughts. For other experts, the essential unit is that people are capable of modulating their feelings. For other people, it's people, people are um, needing to adjust their attitude or their belief system or their history or their interpersonal relationships. And it's as if each expert in psychotherapy has staked out an area of the human endeavor and they focus their therapy around helping people to manage in that particular area. When you talk about an essential unit, that's a focus towards an end goal, the motivation. In psychotherapy, deciding what the essential unit of change is, is something that we've been struggling with, and many different theorists have come up with different ideas about what should be essential. For example, for Freud, it was transference. And he said the residues that we carried from our developmental stages or earlier life contaminate our perspective of the present. And that if you could analyze those, those residual forces, then you could live a life that was more autonomous, more free, and more under the agency of your ego rather than the more base impulses that existed in your id. Well, that was great. It was brilliant. It was remarkable. And I think if I had 100 years to live, I never would have thought about that as being the essential unit from which you could build a psychotherapy. But then other people have said, well, relationship, and that's what's really important, and how people work interpersonally, and that if you change the interpersonal context, people change. We've seen studies in family therapy where, where a family comes to a family therapist, 
and the blood sugar of the diabetic child changes because of an intervention in family therapy. So we know that making a systemic change can lead to a physiological change. Well, let's talk about the experiential aspect and how that was manifested, not necessarily on a material plane, but at least on a spoken plane through your work with Milton Erickson uh, when you first began to know of him and were drawn to him. In 1973, I visited Milton Erickson here in Phoenix for the first time, and for a youngster in the field of psychotherapy, to visit Milton Erickson would be like, oh, if you were a computer person, you get to visit Bill Gates, or if you were, were uh, you know, a car maker, you got to visit Henry Ford. It was just an opportunity of a lifetime to study with one of the people who would be on anybody's short list of the greatest psychotherapists in history. And I was taken by him, and I was taken by him not only because of his wizardry and brilliance, but because of who he was. And this was a man who suffered the indignities of polio at the age of 17 when he was a champion high school athlete and spent the last 13 years of his life in a wheelchair. And um, he was one of those profiles in courage, one of those people who would vindicate life with his presence. And when you saw him... Well, if you were in pain, well, by the way, he was probably in more pain than you were. And if you had limitations, well, he was pretty confined to a wheelchair, and his vision was double, and his hearing was impaired, and he was breathing by half a diaphragm and a few intercostal muscles, and his pain was practically quadriplegic. As a result of the polio that he suffered as a young man? Well, from polio, what he suffered when he was 17, and post-polio syndrome. And what he exuded into the air was a joie de vie, a sense of being fascinated with life and glad to be alive and interested in the people who he was with. And I was inspired by him. And he was the archetype of the wounded healer who took his own pain and suffering and helped to bring joy into other people's lives. And he did that primarily through an experiential method where therapists roughly could be divided into two camps. There's one camp that's more cognitive and based more in education, another camp that's experiential, thinking that people change by virtue of the experiences they live more than by the information that they get. So information might be the dessert, and the main course might be experiences, which could be hypnosis or directives or symbolic tasks, assignments, stories, metaphors, because people know For example, they know to stop smoking. For example, they know to modulate their diet. For example, they know to be kinder in relationships. But people don't necessarily realize, in a more heartfelt way, what they already know cognitively. So an experiential approach is getting people to live experiences that help them to realize that they can move from the land of knowing to the land of realizing. Let's stay with hypnosis for a minute. Sure. I've heard you mention that hypnosis doesn't exist. Yeah, hypnosis doesn't exist in, in a very phenomenological sense. It's an epistemological error to nominalize hypnosis and make it into a thing. And hypnosis is a series of components that have a temporal process to them. It's a syndrome. People come to me because mm, they have apathy or... They're not motivated, or they're withdrawn, and so they're locked into a state. And my job is to help them to get out of that calcified state and move into a more ebullient state about enjoying their life. 
And hypnosis is a technology of helping people to change states. And it's an unfortunate characteristic of human behavior that we get locked into states. And we get locked into states of uh, being um, overwhelmed or, or being lost or being confused. So mostly I think of people coming to me because they get locked into states. What causes someone to be locked into a state? Well, I couldn't say that because I'm really not a theorist. But I would say that it's part of our evolutionary biology and that most of the states that we get into, we are capable of negotiating flexibly. And we know when we're attentive and we know when we're present and we know when we're motivated and we know when we're curious. And we can distinguish those states because we move in and out of them so fluidly. Uh, It's just that if, say, the person um, is uh, apathetic and then the amount of time that's spent in that state, it becomes a kind of identity. This is who I am. I'm a person who is apathetic. Rather than seeing that as a more flexible state, that if somebody is apathetic, well, yeah, then they can... uh, help themselves and move and be motivated. And beside that, they probably have a very wealth, uh, a wealth of history, of historical examples of what I would call reference experiences for being motivated anyway, which makes the metaphor of hypnosis waking people up to the potentialities that exist inside them and not the media-presented image of hypnosis as one of put, putting people to sleep. Or would they have a wealth of experience in being not motivated so that they build on that and see themselves as that example, an unmotivated person. Right. So if I can, you know, get somebody to um, uh, go to a schoolyard and uh, play on the swings and just by virtue of doing that start to feel some of the joy of their own childhood and uh, re-encounter the experiential memories of wee and um, you know, just feeling in the moment and free and, and start to wake up some of those uh, historical reference experiences, I would consider that to be one of the foundations of the kind of psychotherapy that I do. But in the office, I might do that by getting the person into some imaginal situation that we could call a hypnotic trance and perhaps doing some of the same thing and getting in touch with some of those experiences, gradually building up a reservoir of experiences that would overflow into more flexible behavior. Well, Jeff Zeig, I want you to tell us how you would get someone into a hypnotic trance. But before we get there, I want to say that in this edition of Radio Curious, we're talking with Jeff Zeig from his office in Phoenix, Arizona. He's the director and founder of the Milton Erickson Institute. And this is Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Jeff, how do you get someone into or how do you induce a hypnotic trance using the example that you just gave? Well, if you think about meditation, hypnosis, active imagination, relaxation, prayer, they, they're all a state. And many of those are based in making a change in your attention, then making a change, it's another specific change in the intensity of your experience, and then making another change that could be some degree of dissociation, meaning that things just happen or you feel yourself apart from and a part of the experience, and that if you make some change in those three areas, 
attention and intensity and dissociation. You may call your experience hypnosis, or you may call it meditation or prayer or reading or active imagination or going to the movies, and you know that you're in that state. Now, in hypnosis, we have an addition to those to that triad, which is that there's a, an alteration in interpersonal responsiveness, and the person starts responding to the meaning of the message. Now, in a context called hypnosis, if somebody changes their attention in specific ways and changes the intensity of the experience, their memories may be vivid, their images may be vivid, the sensation of their body may be less vivid, and if they dissociate and if they start to respond, then that those five elements, the context, the attention, the change in intensity, the change in dissociation, and the change in response, summate. And so the induction of hypnosis is based on eliciting those components until the person accesses a state that the person themselves would call a hypnotic trance. And in, in that state of hypnosis, people find that they can do remarkable things physiologically and psychologically that they hadn't realized they were capable of. We all have dormant capabilities that need that can be awakened. So uh, in hypnosis, we've learned that people could, for example, control a virus on their skin, that you could go into trance and you could eliminate a wart. You could calm your gastric motility and you could change irritable bowel syndrome. There's a 10-session protocol that has been well-researched in a number of different hospitals in, in the world that you could use for IBS. How do you induce that change? Um, you can't really do an induction in the media, but it's like thinking about guided imagery. And so if you were doing guided imagery, then the person who was guiding you would be asking you to do dissociative elements, changing the intensity also of your visual experience. If somebody was guiding you into meditation, they may be asking you to focus your attention and to focus your attention internal, perhaps on your breathing. So there, there's like a trunk of a tree. And if you thought that meditation and mindfulness and active imagination and autogenic training and relaxation training, all of them draw from the same uh, trunk of the tree. And then they move off into different directions depending on the additional elements that you emphasize uh, or that you delete. And then we call some of our states different names like relaxation or meditation or mindfulness or hypnosis. So the art of learning how to do hypnosis is learning how to guide those elements in such a way that they coalesce into a state. Basically, we could say that there are emotions, and emotions are fleeting, like you're immediately afraid or you're immediately happy. There are moods, and moods are like calcified emotions. I'm in a happy mood, I'm in a depressed mood. And there are states, like attentiveness, curiosity, interest. And you can't really say that those are emotions, but they're syndromes, they're complexities that we negotiate on a day-to-day -day basis. And we don't even realize how facile we are at changing our state and hypnosis would be in that category of states. And because when my perspective on when people are coming to me, they want themselves or they want their partner to change their state. So I want a technology that will help me to help people to shift their state and move into more malleable and flexible states. 
So using what you've just said, let's shift our conversation towards relationships and partner relationships. I'm referring to your acronym of TOPIA, taking obvious pleasure in another's happiness. Can you expound on that? Yeah. It's the idea that human beings feel things intently, and we don't tend to understand the relational impact and the interpersonal impact. And we don't even have a great vocabulary for looking at the interstitial space at what happens among people. Now, the field of social psychology in the last 25 years especially has made incredible strides at showing how people respond to contextual variables, demand characteristics, interpersonal attributions that are implicit, priming. Can you give some examples of those? I think there's, there's a lot said in those 15 words. Oh, boy. Well, priming would be like foreshadowing how the earliest, earlier presentation awakens a representation. So the Russian playwright Chekhov said that if the curtain opens and there's a gun over the mantle, somebody's going to get shot by the third act. Now, every great musician and theater uh, uh, writer for theater, every great um, you know, novelist, movie director, they use this technique, and it implicitly builds responsiveness. We don't even recognize how we're responding to those implicit interpersonal influences. So if we come back to the idea of Topaya, if a, a, a patient, friend, anybody came and said, Dr. Zeig, you're a psychologist, you're an expert, what's love? Well, I could say, well, love is a feeling of warmth and it's a feeling of compassion and resonance, and I would be defining love as an internal state. But if I took an interactional perspective and I looked at love as a social phenomena, I said love is topaya. T-O-P-I-A-H, take obvious, and obvious is the operative word, take obvious pleasure in another's happiness. So it's the difference between, let's take the stereotypical example, a man who comes home and loves his wife's cooking, to a man who comes home and loves how happy his wife is to cook, because that's really her hobby, and she enjoys it so much. So taking obvious pleasure in another's happiness is an interactional definition of love. It's looking at love from what happens among people rather than inside people. And we're really not so well-designed as human beings to understand interaction effects. And we certainly don't understand the profound nature that interaction, the profound effect that interaction, interaction, interaction effects, contextual effects has on us. We believe wrongly that our behavior is autonomously determined. And I heard a recent neuroscientist give a a metaphor for that recently, and he was talking about a luxury liner like a cruise ship, and he said that the conscious mind is a stowaway on the luxury liner that somehow believes that he's at the tiller. And we, we consciously believe that we're doing so many things, but modern neuroscience has demonstrated that the automaticity of everyday life is really profound and the way that we respond to uh, extraverbal uh, influences in, 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 our, in our world uh, is much more robust than we ever believe. You talk about bids and responding to what people say, and you, you lead on to love maps in terms of relationships where there's a feeling of frustration between people, whether they're couples, work colleagues, or casual acquaintances. 
Can you uh, address those and how they link together? This is in the work of John Gottman, G-O-T-T-M-A-N, and he's uh, a friend and a brilliant expositor and probably the greatest researcher of couples in history. And a bid is like, you know, I'm walking down the street with my wife, and I say, well, look at that tree. And she says, oh, yeah, you know, that tree, it's beautiful. It was a tree like that when, you know, we first got married, and we were sitting underneath that tree, and we were talking about our future. So a bid is just a little, um, it's kind of an invitation for response in the communication. And we find in Gottman's research that the couples where, where they're clearly responding to each other's bids. These are the couples who, uh, one of the characteristics of couples who are really successful, building love maps and trying to continuously understand your partner's experiential reality, what works for them, and spending time and trying to understand how your partner sees the world. This is another aspect of what makes marriages work and couples, and not only marriages, but relationships work. And as long as we're on the topic and I can expostulate, we have a a wonderful group that we've just named the Relationship Council, which um, is uh, a series of really incredible uh, experts on couples therapy, and I'm honored to be a member of that group. But people like John Gottman and Harville Hendricks and Ellen Bader and Um, So uh, people who have really contributed a lot to couples therapy, and we've been meeting with people who are philanthropists and uh, experts in the media, and we we meet every six months, and we're trying to establish a project that will um, demonstrate to the world that people who really pay attention to their relationships and build their relationships build a value that is um, incomparable in terms of improving everyday life and improving human social functioning. And uh, we've spent more time loving. We certainly would spend less time in some of the other nefarious things that happen in life. And so there's more technology that's available about how couples, how the world of couples can be improved. And I'm glad to be in a a group that's trying to take a a leading role in making some of that technology available to the public. So you take that same concept that you suggest couples do to single people who are looking to couple up. It seems to me the same theories would work. Take pleasure, obvious pleasure, in what someone who uh, a person might be interested in is doing. Take obvious pleasure in another's happiness. Yes. It's such a, you know, there's very simple formulas. Uh, the human brain is a mismatch detector, and it's geared and designed uh, from its inception to notice what's wrong in any given situation. If there was a piece of furniture in the street, we'd have to notice that. And the people who are really successful in life, they learn to enhance the positive and to reduce the negative. And if we, if I could just package that and people would learn how to take whatever is going right, what's going right now, what's happening right now, and I mean that in all of the idiomatic senses that you can transpose that sentence, and if people focus on what's, what's happening right now, what's happening right now, then I think the world would be a better place. And unfortunately, uh, that doesn't seem to be an element that's built into the human design. It seems to be something that we really need to work on on a continuous basis. Switching once again 
to another topic that I've heard you say a couple of times. When you're asked to predict the future of psychotherapy, comment is something like, if you want to make a fool of yourself, predict the future. How do you apply that concept um, to the field of astrology or palm reading? Well, I don't know anything about palm reading or astrology, so I, I'm, I'm really uh, the ba- a bad person to ask about that. But I think that, you know, in, in human history, there have been soothsayers and there have been you know, people who focus on, on the future. And, uh, gee, I hope there is a wonderful future. Uh, but um, more of my orientation is uh, to the present and the way in which people, life needs to be lived in the present, referencing the lessons of the past and anticipating the consequences of the future. So it's a more of a process of being through time. And if we get locked into uh, an unpredictable future, if we get lost in uh, an unchangeable past, we wind up doing curlicues in our life. So we need to a uh, present in the moment. Well, Jeff Zeig, I want to thank you very much for being with us on Radio Curious and ask you a couple of questions about you. One of them being a eureka or aha moment in your life that you stand by, you celebrate. Well, I, I had this idea of a book, and I was going to call it Romancercises, and little romantic exercises that people could do. And I thought, okay, I'll do one for men, and uh, the women won't be able to buy that, and I'll do one for women, and the women, and the men won't be able to buy that. And I started asking people, you know, well, what's the most romantic thing that your spouse has ever done, your your lover has ever done? And uh, then I uh, asked my sister, and my sister is uh, gay, and she said that when she got up in the morning, that her lover, Teo, would say, I want to move over to your warmth so that I can sleep in your warmth. And I gave up on the book at that moment because I realized that uh, it's those little moments of extraordinary thoughtfulness and extraordinary kindness and extraordinary attentiveness that really make... uh, romance in the best sense of the word, not just the lover sense, the romance of life come alive. What would you like to do with the rest of your one precious life? Well, I I turned 65 this year. This is my Medicare year. And um, I, uh, you know, would, uh, (laughs) I suppose that I'd like to be the oldest living psychotherapist. So uh, I I, I have lots of projects and uh, a boundless energy for doing these projects. I am uh, traveling often and teaching. I leave on Thursday to go to Europe to teach, and I just got back from uh, being in Brazil at the beginning of this month where I was teaching. So I I live a peripatetic existence and love what I'm doing and traveling around the world and teaching people and enthusing them about these experiential approaches. I have a lot of books that I intend to write and try to uh, get some of the wisdom that I've distilled over the 65 years into print. So those would be... Uh, and then we organized lots of things for the Milton Erickson Foundation. If you Googled Milton Erickson Foundation, you could see some of the things that we were, we were doing. And finally, is there a book that you could recommend to our listeners? Um, when I think about the, the books that have probably influenced me most profoundly, I think that uh, reading Tolstoy has been uh, an incredible joy. And, um, you know, 
probably uh, reading The Little Prince. I've read that, I think, more times than I've read anything, and that if you really want to understand something about matters of consequence, reading The Little Prince is uh, one of those chiropractic adjustments that puts you back on target. Well, Jeff Zeig, thank you very much for being with us on Radio Curious. Well, it's been my pleasure, and thank you so much for inviting me. Dr. Jeffrey Zeig is a clinical psychotherapist and founder and director of the Milton Erickson Foundation in Phoenix, Arizona. The books he recommends are The Little Prince, as well as the books written by Leo Tolstoy. You may find more information at his website, jeffzeig.com, J-E-F-F-Z-E-I-G.com, and erickson-foundation.org. All Radio Curious programs are free at our website, radiocurious.org. Our phone is 707-462-6541. Email is curious at radiocurious.org. Christina Anastad is our associate producer. I'm host and producer, Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.